Good morning. Our next case is Morris versus Redbird, and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is Spencer Fritz with the law offices of John McCabe on behalf of the plaintiff appellant, Freedom Morris. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. This case presents the question of whether Mr. Morris can be denied his fundamental constitutional right to access the courts of this state prior to reaching the age of majority. The answer must be no to this question, and the Court of Appeals opinion below must be reversed for two alternative reasons. First, the dissent's reading of Section 1-17C was correct, and section, subsection B supplies the tolling provision applicable to Mr. Morris's claims. Or, in the alternative, Section 1-17C, as applied to Mr. Morris, is unconstitutional under the Equal Protection Clause and, um, sorry, because it denies him a fundamental right under the North Carolina Constitution. That right is the right to open courts. Regarding the statutory interpretation question, Mr. Morris agrees with Judge Hampson's interpretation, and I believe our briefs have addressed this issue at length, but I did want to elaborate on one point before focusing the rest of my argument on the equal protection analysis. In interpreting Section 1-17C, I think it's important to be mindful of the analysis employed in King. In that case, this court was tasked with interpreting subsection B of 1-17 and determining whether the appointment of a guardian ad litem would remove the disability such that the tolling provision in that statute did not apply. After conducting its statutory analysis, the court then looked to our longstanding jurisprudence to confirm that this was a reasonable interpretation. For instance, the court looked to prior cases dealing with the appointment of a guardian ad litem and how that affected a minor statute of limitations. In looking at this long-standing jurisprudence, the court found its interpretation reasonable. I think in a similar vein, the court should employ that same type of analysis here and look at the long-standing jurisprudence as it relates to minors in this state when interpreting subsection C. Specifically, uh, I would point to the amicus brief of North Carolina Advocates for Justice, which demonstrates the long-standing jurisprudence in our state is to protect minors by restricting their rights while they're a minor and by not allowing them to file suit until they reach the age of majority, unless they have a guardian ad litem appointed. For instance, there's several things that our law does with regard to minors and restricting their rights during minority. First, they cannot contract with a lawyer in order to hire them for their services. Another thing they cannot do is enter into a settlement or waive any of their claims. And lastly, a minor is not allowed to file a lawsuit in North Carolina. Under Rule 17 of the North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure, they must proceed under a guardian ad litem. I would also point this court to the decision of Tate v. Moat from this court almost 140 years ago, in which this court said, a minor is presumed incapable of acting for himself and must act, if at all, through a guardian ad litem. Without a guardian ad litem, Quote, he cannot properly bring and maintain an action at all. Recognizing that we limit minors' rights and the reason we do this is in order to protect them given that they are not capable of managing their own legal affairs. For over a hundred years, 
the longstanding jurisprudence of this state has been to allow a minor's statute of limitations to toll until they reach the age of majority. Uh, that longstanding tradition is found in Selfie Shugart, and that is a 1904 case in which it allows a minor to reach the age of majority before filing. So in looking at the statutory text and in analyzing whether or not subsection C or subsection B applies, I think this court should look to the longstanding jurisprudence just as we did, as this court did in King, and find that subsection B was the applicable statute. I just want to clarify one thing, see if you'll agree there, that yes. the statute of limitations, I'm sorry, the statute of limitations is something that's created by our General Assembly. And if as a policy matter, they decided <clears throat> that um, minors won't have until the age of majority, they'll, the limitations period to bring suit may be less than that, our only role in, as the court would be to say the constitu our state constitution does not permit that, but we couldn't say that's a really bad idea because our common law has always said something different, so you can't do that. Yes, Your Honor. I agree that the statute of limitations question and where we draw that line is a question for the General Assembly. However, the question of whether it fundamentally inhibits a minor's constitutional rights is a question for this court. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, with that, I'd like to turn to the constitutional argument. Throughout the Appley's briefs, I, I think they've distorted our argument to a degree, and so I want to clarify the nature of Mr. Morris's constitutional claim and the required level of scrutiny. Mr. Morris is claiming that the Court of Appeals interpretation and the Appley's interpretation of subsection 1-17C, if it is allowed, will violate Mr. Morris's constitutional rights under the Equal Protection Clause as applied to him and that the proper level of scrutiny is strict scrutiny because it denies him a fundamental right that is explicit in our Constitution, that is the right to be able to bring a lawsuit. Now, before walking through that analysis a little bit, I want to start off and just delineate what classes we're looking at under this statute. I think that's important for our analysis and kind of tells us why we're in this equal protection realm in the first place. Specifically, what the statute does as it relates to Mr. Morris is it creates a class of those seven and older, seven to 15 years old, and gives them a three-year statute of limitations. Accordingly, that class as a whole will never, unless they're appointed a guardian ad litem or adjudicated, um, abused or neglected, they will never be able to file a lawsuit upon reaching the age of majority. They're treated differently than two other types of classes. The first class are, is a subset of medical malpractice minors, those under the age of seven, who receive an additional tolling period up to 10 years. And then there's the third class that it, this is counteract, contrast. Can I stop with. you there? Because that yes. was something that I found curious about your argument. But So I want to make sure I understand. If you're a one-year-old infant, and a doctor negligently performs some kind of surgery on you and severely injures you, uh, can you, once you turn 18 and you realize that this happened to you when you're one year old, under our law, bring that medical malpractice claim? I think under the reading of this statute, no. They would be capped at 10 years, but I think- But is that unconstitutional? Because isn't that, that one year old also deprived of that access to court? 
And Judge Dietz, I think you, I'm sorry, Justice Dietz, you've brought up a great point here, and I think this goes to the heart of why this is an as-applied challenge. We are not challenging other iterations of this statute. I will concede to you, I think, taking this argument to its logical conclusion that yes, it would be unconstitutional to those minors, but again, that is not the question we have, that is before this court. It's whether Mr. Morris, as applied to him, were his constitutional rights deprived. I hope that answers your question. And just to follow up on that, yes. this statute, even following the logic of your argument, could be constitutionally applied to minors 15 and older. Yes, it could. So there are some instances where the statute is constitutional. Yes, and you view. brought up a good point, and I think that speaks to the as-applied nature of this challenge again. So let's talk a little bit about the fundamental right. Would you agree that children have a fundamental right to medical care and school, uh, good schooling and meals and housing, that type of thing? I won't speak to schools, but I, I think you've brought up a relevant analogy that's current today with the General Assembly. Certain medical procedures, the General Assembly has recognized minors should not be making these decisions and parents should not be making these decisions. And I think the General Assembly is within its rights to be able to hold that decision until the minor can make that decision at 18. But, but isn't it true that uh, we allow parents to make just about every uh, significant decision uh, for minors and particularly young minors? And I would agree that just about every decision we do, however, the decision to file a lawsuit is not allowed to be given to a parent. It must, under Rule 17 of the North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure, be brought by a guardian ad litem. And but parents would be the ones who would, generally speaking, engage uh, the, the, or begin the process for the appointment of a guardian ad litem and that type of thing. Yes, I would agree. Generally speaking, the parents would start that process. And would you agree that, um, uh, that it's possible with uh, newborns and uh, very young children that uh, the uh, ramifications of uh, alleged malpractice don't become apparent immediately but require the development uh, of the child before those become apparent? I think in many circumstances, yes. Uh, I, I think there's also many birth injury cases that become readily apparent immediate upon birth. Um, so do you, do you concede that there's a, a rational reason for the General Assembly to have given younger children, uh, the parents of younger children or the guardians, additional time to file their claims? And I use rational basis. Yes, I would concede that that is a rational basis, but here I don't think rational, or we do not contend that rational basis is the standard that applies. Um, and and I, I'm happy to walk through that analysis. Instead, under an equal protection claim, the court starts out with employing a two-tier analysis. First, we need to identify what level of scrutiny we're going to, the court is going to apply, and then second, whether that statute survives that level of scrutiny. Here, Mr. Morris contends that strict, stru, stru, strict scrutiny sorry, is applicable 
and that is the standard this court should apply. Uh, as far as strict scrutiny goes, there are two classifications or set of facts, really, that this applies to. One is when you're dealing with the suspect class. Uh, the kind of quintessential suspect class would be race. We are not alleging that this is a suspect class. Instead, we fall under the second type of scenario to which these facts apply. Um, and that is where the statute infringes on the ability of the class to exercise a fundamental right. And I think the question yeah, then becomes- I don't think you're gonna hear anyone on this bench suggesting that you know the access to courts clause isn't a fundamental right. But I think the, at least what I'm struggling with is if the idea is that uh, as a child you have this right and it's not one that your parents can decide for you, it's hard to see how we, you could say that that's the case for access to the open courts principles but not for all the other rights. So for example, if you're a seven-year-old and you're on your way out the door and your parents say, where are you going? And you say, I'm heading to the anti-war protest. They will say, oh no, you're not. Get, get back in this house. We don't want you going there. And you wouldn't say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, my parents are depriving me of my free speech rights. The idea is that every minor is somehow in loco parentis. You either have parents or there's someone that's responsible for making these decisions for you. And the idea would be that person gets to decide, should we bring a lawsuit for you or not? Mm -hmm. And that you're not being deprived of that right because this person is making it for you. So um, what's wrong with saying that that's the case for accessing the courts just like it is for every other right that as a child your parents may say we're gonna make this choice for you? And I think you brought up a good point and I'd like to tweak your analogy a little bit. I think we'll show the distinction here. Um, using the First Amendment, it's not so much the parents saying well, I'm acting as a parent and restricting you, but I would change the analogy to the state passes a law that says minors have no free speech rights, and a minor wants to be able to challenge that. We as a state wouldn't say, well, your parents can exercise your free speech rights, so it's okay for us to restrict your free speech rights. It's in that same regard here that just because a parent can seek out a guardian ad litem if they don't do it, that doesn't mean that that minor has lost their right to be able to access the courts. So that would be my distinction there, Your Honor. Um, and going back to the fundamental nature, I, I, I agree. I, I think this court has said that the right to access the courts is a fundamental right. And Accordingly, because it is a fundamental right, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about how this restricts his. I think we've covered a little bit, but again, this goes back to the idea that even if there is a guardian ad litem that could bring this action or a parent that could pursue it on their behalf, the minor does not have that choice. And what this statute does is it operates to eliminate the minor's choice upon reaching the age of majority to decide for themselves whether they want to exercise their fundamental constitutional rights. And so that's why it is strict scrutiny that should apply. Turning to strict scrutiny, the standard to be applied by this court is the um, 
legislation or statute in this case will only up be upheld if it is narrowly tailored to serve a compelling interest. I'd like to spend a little bit of time first on the compelling interest section. And I will note at page 33 of the Appley's brief, they suggest as a compelling interest, it is conceivable at a minimum that section 1-17C serves as a legitimate government interest in reduced healthcare costs that are realized when fewer torts lawsuits are filed. After that, they follow it with a cite to the legislative history from the 2011 amendment in which this bill was passed. The problem here is that the legislative history does not offer a single explanation for why this bill serves a compelling interest. Instead, all of the legislative history details discussions over the cap on non-economic damages, which was the main contentious point of this bill. Section 1-17C did not receive any consideration, and I'll point the court to our, our Court of Appeals brief in, in which it highlights this, but there is simply no legislative history to discuss that any statistical analysis was ever, ever done about the effect of this bill or whether it was necessary. Instead, I would point the court to the committee report from the 1976 proposed legislation, which Amicus North Carolina Association of Defense Attorneys has cited in their amicus brief. There, they cite the majority opinion or majority report. However, there is also a committee minority report in that, which was adopted by the Senate and which the proposed 1970 bill that is very similar to this one was not passed. And I think that is an operative report to look at. And in there, they looked at statistics on the prevalence of claims made by minors more than three years after the occurrence of the alleged negligence. I think that's the type of statistic we would need to look at in, in assessing whether a compelling interest is in fact asserted by this bill. As you're talking about the facts that would relate to um, assessing this under the under strict scrutiny, that raises for me the question of whether the dissent was correct that we, we actually need to remand for the trial court to consider the constitutional arguments. And, and not only might there be factual matters that haven't been developed by the trial court, but it also seems to me this is, as I look at uh, other states around the country, I count, and my count may be wrong, but I count 15 states that have considered this and upheld similar statutes, um, 10 states that have considered it and decided that these statutes violate the state constitutions, and in some instances they have similar open courts provisions to North Carolina's. Mm -hmm. um, given that this is um, you know, such a fundamental question, shouldn't we remand to the trial court to? decide this in the first instance? Yes, Your Honor, I, I would agree that that would be a prudent decision. I, I think the fact that this comes up on a pre-answer 12B6 motion without any expert reports, which Justice Earls, as you alluded to, is often included in those decisions from other states. So I think that would be a prudent move for this court. But returning back to the statistical analysis from the 1976 committee report, the committee found, quote, this analysis did not demonstrate any need for the enactment of legislation restricting the rights of minors who would not have the capacity to bring suit in their own behalf. I think that is the only statistics that we have on this record, and it points to this not being a compelling interest. 
Beyond that, though, Section 1-17C is not narrowly tailored. Our courts have said before that a regulation is not narrowly tailored if it suffers from needless over-inclusion or suspicious under-inclusion, and that it must favor the least restrictive alternative. Here, I think this section 17C fails all three of those prongs. And in looking at this, I think it's important to look at the purpose of what seven, seven, section 1-17C is trying to accomplish. And what they're trying to accomplish is preventing 19-year-old stale claims. And in fact, the way that they have articulated this statute, they have said that a claim less than 10 years is not a stale claim. And that goes back to the purpose of statutes of limitations in general, is we're not trying to deprive anyone of their just rights, we're trying to just prevent stale claims. So that by using the 10-year, we know this is what they're, by definition, a 10-year-old claim is not a stale claim. They're trying to prevent 19-year-old claims. But the failure to provide Mr. Morris any tolling provision at all when he filed his lawsuit four and a half years after his injury shows that this is needlessly over-inclusive because it's including more than is necessary to accomplish the purpose. Beyond that, by that same token, it also shows that it's suspiciously under-inclusive by giving those under 10 or under seven, technically, at least 10 years to file a lawsuit. He has three years. Again, this is not narrowly tailored. And again, by that same token, the failure to give him any additional time when he is 13 years old and files his lawsuit four and a half years after his injury shows that the legislature did not take the least drastic means to accomplish its stated purpose of preventing stale claims. As such, the Court of Appeals interpretation of 1-17C cannot survive strict scrutiny and this court must hold that it is void as to Mr. Morris. I will end with a quote from the 1976 committee report. The constitutionality of such a proposal, such as 1-17C, is, to say the least, doubtful, and in any event, it is an abomination to those who cherish fairness and equal justice for all citizens. When applied to Mr. Morris, 1-17C suffers the same flaws and cannot be used to deny his fundamental right to access the courts of our state. Accordingly, we respectfully ask that this court reverse the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Michelle Liguori. Alex Hagen and I from Ellison Winters represent Dr. David Rodeberg, Stephen Bader, who's with us this morning, and Colleen Shea from Cranfall Sumner represent Vidant Medical Center. And I'll be presenting the argument this morning on behalf of both appellees. The Court of Appeals majority was correct to decide this case on the plain language of sections 1-17C and B. Section 1-17C was enacted into medical liability reform bill. Before 2011, Section 1-17B governed all types of malpractice claims brought on behalf of minors. This court interpreted Section 1-17B in its 2018 decision in King v. Albemarle. There, the court noted that 1-17B generally told the standard three-year statute of limitations in Section 1-15C 
and gave minors until their 19th birthday to file. In a footnote, King observed that the 2011 amendment changed this specifically for medical malpractice actions by adding section 1-17C. 1-17C says the time limitations in 1-15C apply unless the minor was under 10 years old at the time the cause of action accrued, was abused or neglected, or was in the custody of the state. As King observed in footnote two, section 1-17C told the, uh, reduced the tolling age from 19 to 10, thus further narrowing the time period for a minor to pursue a medical malpractice claim. In our view, this case turns on the unambiguous plain language of sections 1-17C and B, which King correctly observed reduced the tolling age for medical malpractice actions brought on behalf of minors, in which the Court of Appeals correctly applied to bar Mr. Morris's claim. I plan to begin my argument by walking through the plain language of sections 1-17C and B, and then I plan to address Mr. Morris's constitutional challenge. So first of all, there's no dispute that Mr. Morris's claim accrued when he was 13 years old. And there are four unambiguous clauses in sections 1-17B and C that show that subsection C and not B applied to Mr. Morris's claim. And we've brought a blow up of this statute here which highlights those four phrases. And the um, entirety of the statute can be found in the appendix to our new brief which was in the back of the brief at appendix pages five and six. First, the, the second clause in subsection 1-17B says, quote, except as otherwise provided in subsection C of this section. That means that if subsection C applies, then subsection B does not apply. And this phrase was added as part of the 2011 amendment. Second, the first clause of subsection C says this again. It says, quote, notwithstanding the provisions of subsection A and B of this section. Again, that means if subsection C applies, then subsection B does not apply. The yellow highlighted phrase here tells us what types of claims are governed by subsection C. It says, quote, malpractice arising out of a healthcare provider's performance or failure to perform professional services. And there's no dispute that Mr. Morris's lawsuit falls within that definition. Fourth, the last clause of section 1-17C says that an action for medical malpractice brought on behalf of a minor, quote, shall be commenced within the limitations of time specified in GS 1-15C except as followed. So that phrase specifically directs the reader to the time limitations in section 1-15C. And as this court observed in King, section 1-15C includes a standard three-year statute of limitations. So any medical malpractice action on behalf of a minor must be brought within that three-year standard statute of limitations unless one of the three stated exceptions in section 1-17C applies, and Mr. Morris agrees that none of those three exceptions applies in this case. So based on that plain language of the statute, the Court of Appeals was correct to hold that subsection C governed Mr. Morris's claim, and it was correct to hold that his claim was time barred 
because it was not brought within three years of when the cause of action accrued. Even beyond this plain language of the statute, the General Assembly's intent that minors who were over 10 years old would, would, um, would have a three-year statute of limitations can be seen if you look at exceptions two and three. So exceptions two and three to 1-17C provide that for a minor who's deemed to have been abused or neglected has three years from an abuse or neglect determination or, or until age 10 to file. And exception three gives children who are in state custody one year from the termination of that custody or until age 10 to file. And exception one gives all children until age 10 to file. And so if, if minors who were over 10 were governed by subsection B, there would be no need to have exceptions two and three in the statute. And so these exceptions show that the General Assembly made a deliberate choice to apply the standard statute of limitations to minors who were over the age of 10. Um, and that underscores the, plain, the Court of Appeals application of the plain language here, which is unambiguous, um, and its application of sec subsection C to Mr. Morris's claim and its conclusion that his claim was time barred. If the court has no questions on the statutory interpretation argument, I'd like to turn to Mr. Morris's constitutional challenge to section 1-17C. In particular, his contention that that statute implicates the open courts provision of the North Carolina Constitution. That argument is contrary to this court's case law interpreting the open courts provision. This court has never held that the open courts provision requires the General Assembly to toll the statute of limitations for minors. Instead, the open courts provision guarantees, quote, a remedy by due course of law. This court has explained that by due course of law means that the remedy guaranteed is one that's legally cognizable. This court repeatedly has held that the General Assembly has the power to decide when remedies are legally cognizable and when they're not. And that means the General Assembly can put time limits on causes of action without implicating the open courts provision. And that's what the General Assembly did here in section 1-17C. It did not deny Mr. Morris a remedy for his alleged medical malpractice injury. It provided a three-year window in which the courts were open for a remedy to be obtained for that injury. Mr. Morris's contention that he personally had a fundamental right to bring a lawsuit after he turned 18 is contrary to this court's open courts case law. The court repeatedly has rejected open courts challenges to statutes of oppose that cut off causes of action before they even arise. The court did so in Tedderton and it did so in Lamb. Cutting off- is there, is there, Have we ever said that barring minors from being able to file lawsuits or go to court is constitutional under that provision? Because the argument I understand your friend to be making is that if a 13-year-old walks into the courthouse and says, here's a well-drafted, you know, well-pleaded medical malpractice complaint, my name versus the doctor for the surgery that happened last week, that the courts will say, sorry, go get a guardian and, fi and file this. You're not allowed to come to court and file this. You're only 13 years old. And that's the constitutional 
problem. So have we ever addressed that question? Uh, just to be clear, I understand which question the court, which question you're asking, Your Honor. Um, has it, are, is Your Honor asking if the courts ever addressed the question of whether a minor after he reaches age 18 can bring a lawsuit? Or whether I'm a saying minor the question can, of mm -hmm. have we ever said uh, that there's a, an open courts problem with telling you know 15 year olds that they're not allowed to file lawsuits in court. They have to wait till they're 18. I'm not aware that the courts ever addressed that question. I think the court has. Um, there, there are cases that say that that should be brought by a guardian. I believe the Tate case sort of contemplates that if a minor were to come into court with a well-pleaded medical malpractice act cause of act, uh, complaint, that the court should appoint a guardian for that minor. So if, if someone did come into court by himself um, as a 13-year-old with a complaint, whether well-pleaded or not, the court's job would be to appoint a guardian for that child. Um, and so that, that shows that the courts are open for children. If a child, they cannot pursue the cause of action on their own, but the Rule 17 of the North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure uh, addresses that situation and gives, uh, indicates that the court's role in that situation is to have a guardian appointed. And even if the child doesn't come into court himself, his parents can bring a cause of action on his behalf or um, a relative or friend can bring a cause of act, or can ask the court to appoint a guardian ad litem so that a cause of action can be brought and pursued on behalf of the minor. Um, and just to draw the analogy with cases that involve statutes of repose, um, this court has held again several times that the open courts provision does not prohibit the General Assembly from enacting statutes of repose. And those cut off causes of action before they even arise. And so that's a much harsher result than what we have here, which gave Mr. Mars three years in which a remedy could have been pursued on his behalf. Um, and so if a, if a statute of repose does not um, implicate the open courts provision, of the North Carolina Constitution, then the statute that we have here, which provides Mr. Morris with a remedy, a cognizable remedy, then that's the statute here does not implicate the open courts provision. I guess the, 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 so what I understood your friend's comparison to be was more like, uh, it's not so much a statute of repose issue, which applies to everyone, but the idea that, for example, if the government was to say, you know what, we just don't think that 16-year-olds have First Amendment rights anymore, that that would plainly be unconstitutional. And that the question is why, why would there not be a similar, if this is, a, this is a fundamental right, why would there not be a similar principle that even minors are entitled to this right? And I, but I, what I hear you saying is they have that right. They just get a guardian. So what there's, the never been, there's never been a child that the court system said you can't bring your claim to court, it's just you have some extra procedural hurdles other people may not have about how to do it. And I think there's a difference between the First Amendment right to free speech and the open courts provision, which guarantees a remedy. It doesn't guarantee, doesn't say anything about a child having the right to walk into court and pursue an action on his own. It gives a right to a remedy. 
And there's no abridgment of a right to a remedy here. There's a, there is a remedy. There's no, the, the remedy itself is not being touched. It's just the time frame under which that remedy can be sought. And then the background rules in North Carolina govern how that remedy can be sought by a parent or guardian. Um, and so the, the First Amendment analogy. Sort of following that question, do we have a fully developed factual record in this case that might get to why uh, this is an issue as applied to the specific plaintiff, i.e. issues with getting a guardian ad litem, issues with his parents? I mean, has that been fully tested um, by the trial court for us to review? The record is fully developed for the challenge that Mr. Mars has brought in this case, which focuses on his age. The only argument that he's ever raised in this case was that the law is unconstitutional as applied to him. Right, but I, I hear you saying what, you know, there is going, he's got some options. He's got his parents, he has potential access to a guardian at litem. You have a footnote in your briefs that says, theoretically, a 14-year-old can walk into court with a well-pled complaint and the court should have to um, grant him a guardian. And, and I guess my question is, if that's significant in any way, how do we know that did or didn't happen here? It's, this, Mr. Morris has never claimed that the law is unconstitutional as applied to him because of any facts other than his age. And so to address the challenge that he made here, and it's his burden to show that there's a constitutional problem with ap applying the law to him. He's never said anything that would require development of facts like that. He's never contended that. Um, but he only raised this as applied constitutional challenge in response to a motion to dismiss, which is a somewhat limited procedural posture, isn't it? That's right, that's where he raised it, but he had the opportunity to make whatever arguments he believed showed that the law was unconstitutional as applied to him there. He had that opportunity in the Court of Appeals, and he's had that opportunity before this court. And he's, he has not until today ever requested um, or contended that this issue needed further factual development. Rather, he's always focused the challenge on the age. And he's content, he's, he's, his dispute has always been with the General Assembly's decision to draw the line where it has. And that's something that, that does not require further factual development because it's really an age, an, an issue of age. But there are also the facts that are relevant to the question, if we are to examine this under strict scrutiny, the question of whether or not there's a compelling governmental interest and whether it's narrowly tailored. Uh, if, if the court were to conclude strict scrutiny applies, that would be the analysis. Um, we don't agree that strict scrutiny applies, we don't, of course. Um, but the strict scrutiny analysis looks at what, um, at the facts surrounding the, the reason why the legislature enacted a provision and, and what provision it specifically chose. It does not require um, in every case that there be um, factual determinations as to what the legislature intended. Um, so typically that analysis looks at the legislative history to see what was the purpose of the statute. It looks at the, the decisions that the General Assembly made in enacting the statute and weighs whether um, those, the interest and the, the measures that were chosen to enact the statute, whether they meet the strict scrutiny standard. 
And we believe here the, the record shows that the General Assembly's purpose in enacting 1-17C was to reduce medical liability and to reduce the number of medical malpractice lawsuits. And it chose a statute that reduced the tolling age for minors, which would reduce the number of medical malpractice lawsuits that are filed. And the General Assembly did carefully craft this statute to carve out exceptions in situations where it believed that it would not be appropriate to take away tolling completely for minors. It created exception one, which governs minors under 10. And as the Chief Justice noted earlier, that, um, that provision makes sense because very young children are less capable of articulating issues that they may be experiencing. And so giving young children a longer time for a lawsuit to be filed on their behalf, it makes sense and is a, a rational choice and is a choice that's focused on children's cognitive abilities. Exceptions two and three focus on children who would not have guardian parents that would be able to protect their rights. And so the General Assembly looked at those situations and came up with these two specific exceptions when it enacted the statute in 2011. And as the NCADA's amicus brief points out, those two exceptions were not in the version of the statute that was considered in the late 1970s. And that the General Assembly, we don't know exactly what was discussed in the House committee hearings. We have the records that those hearings took place. We know who was present at those hearings. We know that there were changes made to the statute as a, you know, during and as a result of those hearings. And so we can, I think, infer that those, these exceptions were discussed there and they were calculated to address the weighing of interests that was done in these committee hearings. And um, Justice Rules pointed out earlier that other states have, have similar statutes. This statute is the most carefully crafted to address situations like this. I'm not aware that any of the other states specifically addressed um, children who are in the custody of the state and children whose parents have been deemed abusive or neglectful. Um, and so we, as, a, as an initial matter, um, because the open courts provision guarantees a remedy and because section 1-17C does not abridge Mr. Morris's remedy for a medical malpractice cause of action, it does not implicate a fundamental right. And so the only way to get from rational basis review to strict scrutiny here would be if a fundamental right is implicated and it's not. And so rational basis review is the applicable standard. The Court of Appeals was correct to apply that standard. And it was correct to reject Mr. Morris's constitutional challenge because he failed to show that there's no conceivable rational basis to support the time limits that are imposed in section 1-17C. Again, the legislative history shows that it was, this statute was enacted as part of a medical liability reform bill it was enacted to reduce the number of medical malpractice lawsuits. It reduced the to reducing the tolling age for these lawsuits from 19 to 10 is a con conceivably a rational way to reduce the number of medical malpractice lawsuits. Just, just to explore a little bit the concept that um, it's a legitimate governmental interest to reduce the number of lawsuits, that is still constrained 
by, this, by the constitutional provision, which, which says that every person shall have, um, an, uh, for an injury done him in his lands, goods, persons, or reputation, shall have remedy by due course of law. The legislature can't decide that certain people cannot, can never sue for medical malpractice, even though that would reduce the number of lawsuits. Um, that, um, that's likely the case, Your Honor. I'm not aware of specific, specific cases on that. Um, but that's not the situation that we have here. This, this statute does not, cut off, does not eliminate a medical malpractice cause of action for Mr. Morris. And what the open courts provision guarantees him, again, is a remedy. Well, and this, uh, But he's a person. I mean, it, it doesn't just say there'll be a remedy. It says every person for an injury shall have remedy by due course of law. And the remedy is his, even if it's being pursued by a parent or a guardian. Right, but he personally can't. Under, the, under our current statutes, he personally can't file a lawsuit at he, age 13. He personally cannot pursue a lawsuit. Yes, that's, that's right. And, so, and he personally but, does not benefit from any recovery that would go to uh, something to be taken care of as the court would deem through the guardian ad litem or some type of trust or in other words an, a, a minor can't possess the recovery correct um, I believe until the minor turns 18 that that's held in trust for the minor but that would well, but benefit. It could be used for medical expenses. It could be used for rehabilitative. I mean, there's a whole, uh, uh, cat, there are different categories of the recovery that would immediately benefit the minor that somebody other than the minor has got to take care of, correct? That's correct. That would be a subject to the court's approval about how that would be taken care of. But that is a remedy for the minor. Um, it's supervised by the court to, to make sure that that's done in the best interest of the minor. But that is a remedy for the minor. And there's, there's a difference between a, a cause of action for malpractice on behalf of the minor and a cause of action for a parent to recover for medical expenses that the parent, for example, spent on behalf of the minor. I also want to make a higher level point. So if you look at the statute, help me understand, I don't see anywhere in this statute where it says that a minor can't file a claim in court. That, that's correct, Your Honor. Is there an argument in this case that those portions of our state law violate the open courts clause in, this, in the Constitution? I don't believe that Mr. Uh, Morris has made that argument. I think his Isn't argument is this just focused. kind of a routine statute of limitations claim? There I think are probably it is, Your Honor. Others. Yes. So if there is this claim that implicates of the fundamental right, it's hard to see how it comes from this statute. It may come from other portions of our law that shouldn't be telling children that you can't walk into court and file a lawsuit. Well, that law's been around for a very, a very long time. That's been part of North Carolina jurisprudence. And yes, the statute at issue here is Well, and is I think my, my question was, is that raised in this case? It's not raised in this case. Mr. Morris's constitutional challenge focuses on Section 1-17C.
Um, and your honor, just your honors, I would just like to point out that this statute that was enacted in 2011 is part of a long history of statutes in North Carolina that govern specifically medical malpractice actions, and that this is a subject that the General Assembly over and over again has determined is one that's appropriate to specifically legislate on because of the large number of medical malpractice lawsuits that are filed and because of the importance of the healthcare sector to the state's economy. And your honors, if there are no further questions, um, we ask the court to affirm the Court of Appeals interpretation of section 1-17C to apply to Mr. Morris's claim and to bar that claim. And we also ask the court to affirm the Court of Appeals rejection of Mr. Morris's constitutional challenge to section 1-17C because this statute does not abridge his right to a remedy, which is the right that the open courts provision of the Constitution protects. Thanks very much. Counsel. Rebuttal. Yes, may it please the court. I would very briefly like to touch on the legal, legally cognizable piece, and this comes from the Lamb decision, and I think to understand Lamb, you really need to look at what the facts and what that case says. That's dealing with the statute of repose. That simply says that from X date, which is not the date of injury, until whatever we set it at, in this case was six years, that's the only time that a cause of action can accrue and has to be brought within that time. Statute of limitations say from the date of injury until X date, in this case for Mr. Morris, three years. That's your period within which to bring a suit. And in Lamb, the plaintiff was injured outside of the statute of repose. And what the court held is that they do not have a cause of action. That is why it was not an open courts violation is because they never had a right to the court in the first place. The General Assembly can create and eliminate causes of action, but it cannot eliminate one that has vested. And I will say in that opinion, they said where an injury has occurred for which the injured party has a cause of action, such cause of action is a vested property right, which is guaranteed by the guarantee of due process and the open courts provision. That brings me back to the argument that, well, that's the remedy. He has three years within which to file suit. That's just simply not true. This gets back to the longstanding jurisprudence in our state, and that is that minors are presumed incapable of acting. They cannot act. That's why we have all these other rules. And Judge Dietz, to your point, why those other rules are not unconstitutional and why the constitutional violation is this statute is because every other minor plaintiff besides medical malpractice plaintiffs have until they reach the age of majority and at least one year after within which to exercise their rights. That is the violation of the open courts provision. It's the inability of medical malpractice minors to access the court if they're under the age of 15 or over the age of seven. That group within which Mr. Morris falls cannot exercise their rights unless some third party does it for them. But, but, a, but, but a minor who's under the age of 18, if you're talking about one of those other kinds of claims, um, could, through a guardian ad litem, bring a claim prior to turning 19 or 18. Yes. So, so why is it inadequate here to say that the, the plaintiff could have pursued a claim using a guardian ad litem? 
Because a minor is presumed incapable of managing their own legal affairs. But if we're going to allow guardian ad litems to pursue any claims for minors, any tort claims for minors, seems to me that that implies that that's a, not a constitutionally infirm way to proceed. So why would it be unconstitutional here? Because I think, again, you're relying on a third party to assert their right to be able to access the court and to hire that guardian ad litem and to appoint the court. The minor can't walk into the court himself and say, I want to file my lawsuit. I want to be appointed a guardian ad litem. But isn't lawsuit. that true for any kind of tort claim? Yes, it is, Your Honor, but that is where every other type of tort claim that minor has at least a year after he becomes an adult and his disability of minority is removed within which to file suit. Well, what I'm, what I'm getting at and trying to, and struggling to understand is, uh, and I take your point that in those other cases, you can either proceed by a guardian ad litem or you have until you're 19 to, to file suit, right? But we wouldn't say if a guardian ad litem brought a standard tort claim on behalf of, say, a 15-year-old, we wouldn't say, oh, you can't do that because the minor's 15 and can't bring a claim on her own into court, right? So if, if we allow that, how can we then say that here it's constitutionally infirm simply because the minor to proceed would have to have a guardian ad litem? In those cases, Your Honor, you still have a third party, the parent, who is contracted with an attorney, how, how this typically plays out is the parent would hire an attorney to then petition the court to appoint a third party guardian ad litem to represent the child's interest while the attorney hired by the parent would be representing the litigation. And so this is extra steps by third parties that the child simply can't do. He can't contract with any attorney. He can't proceed on his own. And that is the fundamental issue. But that was getting to my point. Then isn't that the requirements that you should be arguing is unconstitutional? I mean, that's putting too much of a burden on this fundamental right that children have to have access to the courts, through the open courts clause. And it's that process that's the problem. If that wasn't there, this statute wouldn't be offensive in any way because the 13-year-old would just bring the lawsuit within three years. I think that still gets back to the fundamental issue here that they can't leave, they can't manage their own affairs. And also to your point, um, sorry, Your Honor, I'm trying to think through this to answer your question. The real issue is not so much with the appointment of a guardian ad litem, it's that these other tort plaintiffs get until they're at least 18 or, ni or 19 or 21 within which to make their own decision where they won't have to appoint a guardian ad litem. The guardian ad litem procedures are there to benefit the minor, but that's not a recourse for their constitutional right to be able to bring a claim once they reach majority. But, um, and I don't want to cut too much into your rebuttal time, but just quickly, I mean, isn't that though a different type of equal protection claim? That would be you're treating the 13 year olds differently than the, uh, you know, the younger people, the, the, the very young children and then the older teenagers, and that's not going to get you to strict scrutiny. Um, that's kind of line drawing is going to have some lower tier scrutiny. So isn't it has to be focused on that you're being deprived of this fundamental right, which is to be able to go to court and file a claim. 
And then I, that's where I was getting at. Well, then isn't the barrier, whatever it is that's preventing you from just doing that as a 13-year-old? And I think I'm struggling a little bit with your question, but if I understand it, I, I don't see the barrier so much as the procedure that a child can has to get a guardian ad litem to file a suit. Because again, I think this goes back to minors are just incapable of managing their legal affairs. Um, we allow guardian ad litems to file lawsuits in line with the purpose of statutes of limitations, which is not to prevent stale claims, but just because we allow something doesn't mean that they can be deprived of their constitutional right upon reaching the age of majority to decide for themselves whether or not they want to proceed with a claim. I think that's where we get at this fundamental issue and a fundamental right that's deprived for Mr. Morris. Hopefully that has answered your question. But unless there are any other questions, I would respectfully request that this court reverse the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both, counsel. Clerk.